This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. You probably don't think about your blood too often unless you see it, and then that's generally not a great sign. But blood it goes without saying, is vital. And all of us may need some extra blood at some stage in our lives. The work and the research that goes into blood and access to blood far exceeds anything you could imagine. Here's just one example. It wasn't that long ago that a precious packet of blood travelled by special courier from America to Australia to save the life of a newborn. Doctors knew that that baby would need a blood transfusion immediately after delivery. But the problem was the baby's blood was so rare that there wasn't a single compatible donor in all of Australia. A request was made for a compatible donor. It was first sent to England and then to a global database where a donor was identified in the United States. And from there, there was a request to have that frozen blood sent. But there was concerns that that frozen bag of blood may rupture a rupture in transit. So they reached out to that donor collected half a litre of fresh blood, had it shipped across the Pacific, and when the mother gave birth, the blood was waiting. That is just one of the many stories when it comes to ensuring that people have the blood that they need when they need it. And most of us might know the basic blood types, but in fact, there are around 300 different blood types. And all sorts of things can impact our access to blood, even climate change. So today we're going to look at everything from freezing blood, how climate change impacts our blood, the different types of blood, and even that you can grow blood, synthetic blood now outside of the body. So do you have a rare blood type? Have you ever had to access blood? And what was that process like for you? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Ed Gannon, Director of Media Means, the former editor of the Weekly Times. Ed, I'm okay around blood. If I see lots of blood, I'm good. I probably won't faint. Giving blood, however, different story, classic fainter. How are you around blood? Uh, morning, Rochelle. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And look, and I think that might have something to do with growing up on a farm and seeing blood quite frequently. Um, however, I do know a very close relative of mine who is a, a veterinary surgeon who doesn't like blood, the sight of blood too often. Um, Maybe they're in the wrong profession. Well, <laughs> perhaps so. But, you yeah, know, I, I have no problems with blood and I have no problem um, donating blood. I am a blood donor. Uh, and I, you donate quite frequently, don't well, you? Well, I did. I was a, um, a frequent donor um, about a decade ago, and then I went overseas to Africa. And at that point, uh, if you went to a country such as Africa, you got uh, knocked off the list for quite some time. I can't remember how long it was. But like all habits, if you don't do it for a while, you you, you, you don't do it. So I, I didn't do it for a while. Then I got back on back on the horse, so to speak, probably about 18 months ago or so and got back into to donating at the urging of my wife and, um, and, and at a pop-up. Uh, blood donation ah, place, so I didn't didn't have to come into the city, so which actually worked well. So, but um, I went to Europe uh, in June this year, and, and on the way back, I spent uh, one night at, at the airport uh, hotel in Kuala Lumpur, and because I'd crossed through immigration into Malaysia, it meant I couldn't donate blood for another 
four months or so, or something like that. So I'm 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 in I'm on the bench at the moment, and I'm due to come out. I think, incredible in how often you donate. Well done. And you have well, we wouldn't call it a rare blood type, but you have a, a an important or a wanted or a needed <laughs> blood type. What did you label it? Well, I'm, I, I am an O negative, um, which is sort of the universal blood type. So which is you can you can basically use it for um, uh, most most. Um, blood types can take it, but I also um, my ro- most recent test, uh, my donation when I went there was not to give you know the, the standard half a litre of, of blood that you do, but I gave a little vial because they wanted to do a test to see if I had this type that actually would be even more helpful for, for specific donors, um, for, for recipients. Sorry, and uh, and they uh, they came back to me and said yes, it is. So um, and their words were, we're probably never going to leave you alone. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I'm going to be a regular from now on in. So when you're there and you're donating, when you look around, are there lots of people there? What's the average age? Does it feel like lots of people are participating? Yeah, look, it, it is. It can be quite busy. If you go into the into the city at the blood donation centre, there, it is quite busy, and there's a, a lot of people sitting around waiting and filling in clipboards and and whatnot. And then and then you go and have your turn. Um, the, the pop up centres that come out to suburbs, it, it probably is, is not as busy. And certain times of the year, um, not as busy. But yeah, it, it's and look, profile um, probably. You know, when I look at it, it's probably in in, in the forties and um, years. Of age, sort of thing, and and uh, you know, it's a, it's a regular stream of people, but I think it's mm. um, yeah, and that's probably your profile. I would thought. Bill's in Omeo. Morning, Bill. Oh, good day. How are you? Good. What's your What did you want to say? Well, I I have a rare blood type AB negative, and uh, there is a demand for this type for this blood type. Um, sadly, I spent time living in the UK during the. Uh, mad cow's disease yeah. period there and was unable to give blood. I used to give blood when I was younger and, you know, sit around on the chair and get a cup of tea and a lolly after giving it. And I, I uh, recently that uh, embargo on people who had lived in the UK during the mad cow's period has been lifted. So I just need a little bit of encouragement to go back to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it, it has been lifted relatively recently. What would that encouragement look like for you, Bill, to be able to do that? Well, probably, uh, probably someone saying, "Look, it's you're doing a great service, really, to be a, to be a blood donor. You're giving life to people, and uh, it's just a question of uh, uh, you know probably getting." Getting me out of Omeo and back into uh, a place that uh, that uh, I was able to give blood at, maybe a mobile, maybe a mobile donor van, because Omeo is a very remote part of Victoria, and yeah. uh, you know it takes three weeks to get a plumber there, let alone. <laughs> yeah. That's true. But that's what changed it and got you back donating, wasn't it, Ed? The the fact that there was a pop-up. So, Bill, you know, a a mobile van. I mean, there's even discussions on whether or not we should be paying people to donate blood. Yeah, so look, I mean, the, the Omeo is a classic example of, of the fact that there's a lot of remote communities. If you live there, it, it, it's not that easy to, to go and do a blood donation for half an hour or so. I mean, I presume in Bill's case, he'd have to go to Benstar, um, and, that, and that's a fair drive to do that. So there is a lot of obstacles in people's ways to go and do it. I mean, and, and this pop-up idea really really works well, but, you know, it, it, it does take 
um, you know, resources, labour, people to to um, work on it and to, you know, to, to get them out to remote communities would take a fair bit of effort as well. I've needed blood multiple times and multiple blood transfusions, says Loz, in recent years. My never-ending thanks to anyone and everyone who has ever donated blood. It's such a simple thing to do, yet it makes a huge difference to so many lives. Today we're going to learn about some of the incredible research that goes into not only accessing blood, but ensuring those who need it can get it. And that could be, as we said, from one side of the world to the other. Do you donate blood? Have you had to access blood in some stage of your life? And maybe you have a rare blood type. This is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt and Ed Gannon with you. Ed's the director of Media Means, the former editor of The Weekly Times. Robert is in East Malvern. He says, I'm a third generation blood donor, my kids' fourth generation. I'm grateful for the opportunity to give blood and to save lives. It's an easy way to make a contribution to the community. And Ed, you and I were talking about this earlier off air. And Julie says, Many years ago, my workplace actually allowed time for us to donate blood. Every incentive counts. I wonder, you know, what kind of involvement workplaces can bring in. Yeah, we, we used to do that, and um, and we were lucky because I, I was based in South South Bank, and and the the blood donor centre at the time was in South Bank, so we would go down there as a group and donate, and there'd probably be about, probably half a dozen of us. So that actually motivated everyone else around you to say, right, actually, I will give blood. And there was people who weren't giving blood at the time who actually said, oh, right, oh, I might as well do it. You're going down there, I'll do it. So it actually, that, it does, that works yeah. really, really well. Yeah, I mean, many actually, I mean, it makes sense now. I hadn't really thought about it. Laura's in the Macedon Rangers, and she says they need to bring the mobile van out to the country towns, otherwise it takes half a day for us to donate. Full border calls on this will get to you in just a moment. But Dr David Irving is the Director of Research at Lifeblood. David, before we get into some of the incredible work that you're looking into, like actually making synthetic blood and growing blood outside of the body and human trials that are already underway there, are we donating enough generally? Oh, hi, Rochelle. Thanks so much for um, the opportunity to talk. Um, short answer to your brief question is yes, but it's always a challenge for us. And I'd certainly like to thank uh, both Ed and Bill from Omeo for um, um, being donors and potentially being a donor again. So I think we're always looking for new blood donors, particularly people who are have those uh, really much wanted uh, blood types like O negative um, and AB negative. So I think that's... Um, but as I said, we're always looking for new new donors. So it's a it's a precious commodity and has a limited shelf life. So, David, would you know what the percentage of the the population donates blood, and and what what sort of the you know what's a typical profile of, mm. a, of a blood donor? Uh, look, it's less than three percent. Um, wow, uh, it, uh, it's really quite small. I think it's um, probably um, yeah, it is less than three percent. Whereas, um, you know, probably one in three people are going to need a blood donation sometime in their lifespan. You probably know someone yourselves that, that, that has been uh, needing a, a blood you know, a transfusion. Um, the profile, we have a range, I think, from 18 to over 80 uh, right across the country. Um, we, In fact, we've just done a study quite recently looking at the distribution of um, ethnicities, blood groups and so on, and we, we reflect pretty pretty accurately the um, changing population demographics across the country, So, which is important because we need to be able to make sure we get the best match possible for transfusion recipients. Absolutely, and looking at just how you know multicultural our community is, there's a message here from Terry, and she says, I love going to donate blood. It restores my faith in humanity, seeing people 
people of all ages and races giving up their time to cheerfully give someone else who can never thank them is so good for my soul. It reminds me that the world is full of wonderful people when the news tries to suggest otherwise. I took each of my kids for their 18th birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> and one of the other things to do about when you donate blood is you do get a notification, and I mean, I, I have, um, that says this: your blood actually went to this specific case. At, oh, at, do you at, really? At the, at, you know, at the Alfred Hospital. So you do you do get that feedback from, and it actually gives you a pretty good feeling to know that I've yeah, donated to someone who's you can sort of almost identify, but it's you know the case you is there. You know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor David Irving is with you. David, stay with us because I want to have a chat to Jody, who's in Bansdale. Good morning, Jody. Mm-hmm. G'day. How are you going? Really well. What did you want to share? Yeah, look, um, about 15 years ago, our son was diagnosed with a really rare form of leukaemia, like one in four, uh, four in a million kids get this particular type of leukaemia. And I just wanted to put a shout out to all the donors out there because he needed a lot of blood transfusions to his treatment and um, it got to the point where his blood actually needed to be warmed before he could take it and unfortunately he he died due to complications of the treatment but um yeah i'm I'm an avid donor myself and i know and we've seen you know it really does save lives so please 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 keep donating for everybody i'm jody i'm so sorry to hear about your son but like that message as well just knowing that people do donate you know, restores that faith in humanity. And this is something that you've continued to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he actually would have been 16 last Thursday and I was at the blood bus giving blood in our in our local town, Densdale. Sounds like the perfect place for you to be on that day, Jodie. Yeah, so, yeah, just a call out to everybody. For those that are thinking about it, please do it because it really does save lives. Jodie, thank you. I mean, David... There's probably lots of stories that just show the importance and the life-changing impacts of, of giving blood. 3%, though, God, I feel really, really That's really surprisingly guilty. low, isn't it? Yeah. How do we get that number up, David? Uh, look, I think with programs like yours, I think it's a great help uh, and just to get the message out there and to have the stories from our blood donors. I'm so sorry to hear uh, Jody's um, um, uh, uh, tragedy. Uh, their friend of ours was in a similar situation a number of years ago, I remember. It's very, it's really hard to take, but uh, thank you so much, Jody, for getting the message out and also for continuing to donate blood. Talk to us about synthetic blood, David. This is something, as the Director of Research at Lifeblood, that you're also working on. Why do we need synthetic blood? What trials are currently happening in the at the UK and potentially here in Australia? Oh, no, thanks for that, um, Rochelle. Look, it's, uh, one of my colleagues actually up in Brisbane is, was actually a pioneer um, uh, in this in this area. And it's, um, to go, just to go back... Um, I guess synthetic blood's been, um, if you like, the holy grail of blood transfusion. I think it's been people have been looking for um, a way to. Um, and when we talk about blood, we're, we're talking about red blood cells. I guess that's really the key issue here. That's that's because uh, blood's um, it's a multi-component uh, mixture. But uh, the red blood cells, the ones that we're just talking about here, which are, are crucial really to deliver oxygen uh, to every uh, organ and uh, tissue in our body, and to remove uh, waste products as well. Um, it's been, it's you know, people say oh, it should be pretty easy to do this, but it's such a complicated uh, process of um, 
taking in taking in air, oxygen through our lungs, binding it into the uh, hemoglobin molecule, which is in the red blood cells, and then those red blood cells take the hemoglobin to the various different extremities in our body, release the oxygen uh, to those cells so that they can work. Um, being able to do that in a laboratory has been a real challenge. And um, as I said, my colleague um, Becky Griffiths, um, who's up in who works uh, in our research team up in Brisbane, um, about ten years ago when she was working with the uh, in Bristol uh, over in the UK, um, helped to pioneer a methodology where we could take stem cells. These are the cells in our body that are essentially uh, grow into red blood cells. Take those uh, from a donor grow them up in a test tube or in the laboratory uh, and uh, generate red blood cells uh, in the lab. Um, now, that's gone a few steps beyond that in the last 10 years. You mentioned, uh, Rochelle, uh, the clinical trial uh, in the UK. Mm. Uh, uh, this is the first trial of um, synthetic uh, red blood cells that have grown the way I just described being put into humans, uh, other humans, and I think now there's... Uh, at least three um, adults have had that uh, those red cells put into them. They've been shown to be safe. Um, but um, that's about as far as it's got so wow. far. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and really, I think the thing that I should mention too is that um, those are small quantities, just a couple of teaspoons full of uh, red blood cells grown in that way. Um, but that's the that the cost of producing that and the time to produce that is uh, horrendous. Really, it's like tens of thousands, if not millions, of dollars uh, to produce that. Whereas, when we get our generous donors to come in and donate half a liter of blood, as you say, um, the, the cost of actually processing that is just a matter of a few hundred dollars. It's incredible to know the work that is going on to make sure that we all have access to, to what we need. David, thank you so much. Dr David Irving is the Director of Research at Lifeway. That's incredible, Ed. I know, and amazing. But, but, I mean, his point at the end is that, that for all that, that all that research, there's no substitute for blood. Like, like the real thing. <laughs> And that's what it comes down to is actually get, getting people to, to donate. I mean, we're doing these, this fantastic research on, on things like synthetic blood and, and red cells, but really it, it's well, about... Well, that's because we're at 3%. Yeah, yeah, it's about the, it's about the number of donors, yeah. And it's, the, and it's, and it's access, to, access to be able to donate to one. And, that, and that's, there's, it's, you know, there's obstacles in some people's ways, and yeah. we understand that. Well, there's a few people talking about that it's quite easy in Hamilton. There's a mobile unit uh, in Hamilton every three months, 70-plus donations there. Plus, you get a free health check as well on blood pressure. I love it, says Diane, who's in Hamilton. Peter's in Wodonga. Morning, Peter. Well, good morning, Rochelle. Congratulations on such a vital topic. Oh, thank you. I think it's very important. What's your story, Peter? Well, eight years ago, almost to the day, my wife accidentally stood on a brown snake oh. and it bit her on the ankle vein and she got the whole dose intravenous. She was unconscious in 10 minutes and on life support for a week, but she required 28 units of blood, cells, plasma and platelets because the brown snake liquefies all the clotting factors. So for three days, she was totally haemophiliac. If it wasn't for the 28 donors, she would not have survived. Oh, my goodness. 28 donors for one case. Isn't that yeah. unbelievable? Yeah. And as a result now, Peter, do yourself yeah. and do your wife give blood? <laughs> We're too old. <laughs> they, won't, they won't have us. See, this is interesting, Peter. There's quite a few yeah. people that have 
I mean, everything from please let gay men donate as well and others saying I'm over the age of 80 but they won't let me donate or particular drugs that you might be on, some for osteoarthritis as well that maybe you can't donate. So a little later in the program we'll, we'll speak to someone to try and work through some of that and what's changed. As we heard from that call earlier, Ed, you know, if you lived in the UK for that certain yeah. period of time, I think that has just been lifted. So hopefully, you know, I want, that wasn't that long ago. I wonder whether there's, there was a big influx there. And, and, and that was always sort of the, the, the big um, one that we always talked about was the fact that people lived in the UK couldn't donate. And that went on for years and years, and that was only recently. I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's the case, but I had heard the other day about um, people with tattoos. Um, the, there was They've a change to that? Yeah, a time restriction oh. for it. For I think it was, I'm, I don't look, I'm just, and I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but it had been, I think it was a, a couple of months or, or a while. I've been down back to a week or something like that after the tattoo because of the, yeah, the t- tattoos. The potential been, risk. Yeah, but, but tattoos that have been conducted here in Australia, um, you know, under licensed tattoo operators, that um, there's they recognise at the low risk. But I mean, I'll probably find out later on yeah. if that section is <laughs> the case or not. But but there is there is a number of obstacles that that get put and and things like um, ear piercing, um, you know, the, the restrictions. So different elements, that, so. isn't it? That I yeah. hadn't really thought about. Yeah. Dr. Lacey Johnson is the principal research fellow at the Product Development and Storage Group at Lifeblood. I mean, I was speaking right at the beginning of today's program, Lacey, about blood that was going to be transported for an unborn baby, for a newborn baby. So the moment the, the woman gave birth, this, they knew that this bub was going to need blood. They were worried if it was sent frozen that it could rupture in the transit so that they actually had fresh blood, I think it's something like half a litre of fresh blood that was able to get to this bub. How risky is transporting frozen blood and you know, how much frozen blood is needed? Hi. So we um, we have methods to very effectively and safely transport blood that is frozen. Um, it does require dry ice um, and special transport containers, but it's you know it's logistically um, possible and easy to transport blood that is frozen. There is some processing that is required um, after the point, though, depending on what blood product is frozen um, before it can be transfused, obviously. So, so Lacey, you're working on developing frozen blood for the Defence Force as well. Is that not the case at the moment that they have access? And, and is it a worldwide thing? There's other, other Defence Forces throughout the world working on frozen blood. And, and you know, what, what happens at the, at the moment in, in a battlefield? Yeah, so there is a lot of military interest in um, frozen blood because um, obviously having a a supply of fresh blood in combat areas is critical, um, but it can be logistically challenging because of the shelf life of the different blood products that are required and differences in the way that we need to store them. So, for example, red cells we store in the fridge, um, they last for 42 days and so you, you, you can keep red cells in those sort of combat areas as long as you've got a fridge. But plasma needs to be kept um, in, a, in a freezer um, and platelets need to be kept at room temperature and they need to be constantly um, gently agitated to keep them happy. So um, that isn't always possible and the shelf life of platelets is only between five and seven days. So it's almost impossible oh, wow. to have platelets on site in a combat area um, and so either they don't have platelets, they don't use platelets, they just rely on um, plasma and red cells if they have access to them or they use what's called a, work, a walking donor panel um, which uh, people 
other people in the military or civilians, of which course. they collect fresh blood from, and they transfuse that whole blood to um, people requiring it, which has its own risks um, because that blood sometimes isn't tested. You're sometimes, um, if you're if you're relying on your military personnel to donate blood, then you're depleting them of their their stores. So you can only do that, you know, wow. infrequently. Um, so My having brain just imploded then, <laughs> like just thinking <laughs> about. Or just uh, what people, what uh, people do, not only you in your uh, warfare, then they go, yeah, I'll give blood. It's a closed well. system, yeah. and, and I'd imagine oh. in, in that case too, it, it depends on the blood types you're going to have in that that are in that group. If there's yes. certain types of blood types that are not compatible with others, you're sort of Correct. restricted as well. With with the frozen blood, I'm interested in when. When you're there, what actually has the process of unfreezing the blood? Is it just a, is no it, microwave? Yeah, is it thawing? Is it in, <laughs> instantaneous, or do you have to bring it down really a lo- over a long time? And does that have an impact if you need it quickly? Yeah. So again, it depends on the blood products that you're requiring. So frozen red cells, um, they actually take quite a while, up to seventy minutes to get ready to be transfused um, because we do need to thaw them. And then we actually need to remove um, some of the cryoprotectant that is used to keep the the red cells happy when they're frozen. Um, We can't transfuse that into people. um, So there's a special machine that we use to to remove that cryoprotectant. So it does take quite a long time. The good thing is, though, is that once it's thawed, you can store it in the fridge for two weeks. So you can actually keep sort of a thawed a small stock of red cells ready, wow. um, which you can once you once you start using that, you can then thaw some in the background. Um, for platelets, for example, they thaw very quickly. It's a very small volume of product, so it only takes four minutes to thaw um, a platelet from frozen, and then you need to add some plasma back to it, and it's ready to transfuse. So um, the, the thawing process isn't super simple it does take some time but it's easy to do in a field if you're trained and you have access to that um, critical frozen stock just finally and and quickly Lacey, this is so fascinating i just find it incredible the work that's being done but do we in terms of humanitarian work and when there is a crisis or a disaster or something traumatic that happens around the globe and we often give do we send blood do we send frozen blood uh, so we have sent frozen red cells um, to other places. But there is a, um, you know, a program to share red cells around, particularly for very rare um, blood groups. So we often get red cells in from other countries for particular patients, and we do send frozen red cells to other places. Um, in terms of plasma and platelets, um, currently we have a stock for our defence force, which they can take. Um, they haven't needed it yet, but we do have it available for them if they need to take wow. it into um, a combat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for for the work and the research that, that you and your team do. Dr. Lacey Johnson is the Principal, Principal Research Fellow of Product Development and Storage at Lifeblood. Jackie's in Blackburn. Morning, Jackie. Oh, hi. Um, I donate regularly with platelets and I dragged my boyfriend last week down to donate blood and they rejected him because he didn't have a hard copy of ID. He only had digital Oh, so what, his licence, or was it something... It was all digitalised. So he's rebooked. We're going in, actually, he's got a 12.15 appointment, but he's had to go home, rebook, and get a hard copy of his driver's licence, passport, or one of the IDs. Mm. But he had all that on his phone. That's a shame. Uh, I mean, we'll speak to someone a little later, Jackie, about sort of who's donating and incentives and whatnot. So we might put that to them, because, I mean, given that we live in a digital world now, you would hope that that 
isn't stopping people. So do you have a rare blood type? Do you give blood on a regular basis? Maybe you've had to access it. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt and Ed Gannon with you, where we are talking about blood today, Ed. And there, well, quite frankly, I can't keep up with the texts in terms of people who are either donating, trying to donate, having troubles donating, who have received blood for one reason or another. It impacts pretty much every part of our society, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, and, and the thing that's really stood out so far is the 3% figure. Yeah. It's the 3%. Imagine you got to 6%. It's doubled it. Imagine, imagine the amount of blood that could be donated at that point. It's just amazing when you think it's 3%. But as, as I said, I mean, it's, not, it's not that simple for a lot of people to donate blood. I mean, there are restrictions, but it's, um, it is a pretty, pretty important and pretty incredible thing. Professor Robert Flower is a National Research Program Leader at Lifeblood. And we were talking about rare blood types and how far some blood needs to travel, Robert. Most of us think there's just sort of a, a handful of blood types, but there's a huge number of blood types and that changes depending on our population doesn't it that's right um that uh, at the moment there are 45 blood group systems recognized and over 350 variants within those blood group systems and some of them are much more common in in some populations than others so for example with europeans um 15 percent are rh negative but in Indigenous Australians and people from East Asia, um, RH negative is almost completely absent. So RH negative is a rare donor in China. Wow. So, so, Robert, what does that actually mean in a practical sense yeah. when you've got different um, ethnicities who've got different blood types? And you know, what, what does it mean to, certainly for the, the blood bank and but, you know, in practical sense? Well, it just means um, that once again, sometimes when somebody needs a transfusion and they have a rare or unusual group um, you have to search far and wide to find blood that's compatible i think we all remember the story of amira um, a young girl in florida where they had to conduct a worldwide search Mm. um, for blood that was compatible for her because it's a blood group that is only common in people from um, Iran and Pakistan. And so we had to search in Australia and we found two donors that were compatible. But sometimes it needs that kind of major international cooperation to find blood that's compatible for a particular person. And And locally, do we need to then, I guess, promote um, to, to different cold, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse groups, maybe people that are newly arrived, whatever it may be, community groups, schools, try and get that word out there, Robert, around donation? Yeah, well, that's one of our programs in Lifeblood at the moment. Um, I believe you're talking to one of our donor research people later on, and um, she would be able to give you more details of, of that program. But we are specifically reaching out to different um communities in Australia to try and and get them to come in and donate and to make them aware that, um, you know, that what they're doing is um, a service to their community as well as to the general Australian population. Um, Um, Robert, what what creates a blood type? How do you get a a different blood type? Well, um, it's just a small variation in a protein or carbohydrate on the surface of a red cell. 
So if you have just one single mutation that means there's an amino acid that's different, um, then that can encode something that's seen as different when it's transfused and people make antibodies and can potentially have a transfusion reaction. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this, you say it like it's just, you know, I mean, this is just incredible. What, Robert, the work that you and your team at Lifeblood do, what made yeah. you start to work in this field and, and to specialise in the world of blood? Oh, um, well, I, I, my career started working in hospitals and so... It were, for, in my case, it was, you know, seeing at the coalface how important it really was. Um, but also, as I went through my career, some of the blood groups that are present in East Asian people um, were not regarded as important in Australia. But now 10% of our population is from yeah. East Asia and blood groups that are 1 in 10 in East Asian people are 1% in our population now. And it's something that through my whole career I've been saying um, this is something where we need to develop an awareness of um, the ethnic complexity of the Australian population. Yeah, absolutely. Professor Robert Flower, thank you so much for the work that you do. We appreciate it. National Research Program Leader at Lifeblood. Trisha's in uh, Bansdale. Morning, Trisha. Good morning. How are you today? Very well. What did you want to say? I'm a negative blood and I decided in the 90s that I was going to donate blood, so I did for quite a while. Then I decided I was too old and I stopped donating. Uh, after my first donation, I received the most beautiful letter from the blood bank saying that my blood had probably saved the lives of 24 babies. Oh my because when I had my children, there was no such advances like they are now. So if you conceive a positive baby, you're feeding it on negative blood and it causes antibodies in your blood, which caused my son a lot of trouble. Anyway, I received this beautiful letter saying I saved the lives of 24 babies oh because goodness. of my antibodies. I stopped donating blood. I had a big cancer operation. And when they knew I had antibodies, they said, you should be donating. Your blood's valuable. And I said, I'm too old. No, you're not. No, you're not. So I trotted off. And they said, no, I couldn't mm. donate. Because I've got RH, I'm um, rheumatoid arthritis. There's someone else, Trish, that actually was talking about going through uh, breast cancer and now not being able to donate as well. I think well, we'll put that to our next guest as well, around age and diagnosis and maybe different diseases that you have lived through. Denise is in Rosebud. Morning, Denise. Oh, hello there. Hi. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, you too. What did you want to say? Uh, look, I was just, just pointing out the fact that that lady more or less stole my thunder. Um, I, I actually had a had a um, a baby uh, in Port Lincoln, and I had I had to have a transfusion after after the cesarean. I ended up being I was told that I had a negative blood, so with antibodies. So I just thought, oh, A negative with antibodies, there's something wrong with that. So I didn't bother to, <laughs> to uh, give my blood. And I went to a, a, a mother's meeting at one stage of the game where, the, where we had someone speaking from the blood bank. And I said to her, well, my, she asked if anyone had given blood and who, what we had, if we knew it. And, or else, and I, I told her I had A negative. And I said, but you wouldn't want to use my blood because I've got antibodies. She whipped out a card <laughs> and said... <laughs> Come in straight away because she said that will help the blue babies. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And you received <clears throat> letters, Ed. I mean, what sort of information are you given? Well, I, I was actually just calling up my text message for, from one of the donations I did, and it said, um, uh, you know, thank you for giving it. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, it could be life-giving to someone soon as it's already on its way to the Alfred Hospital. Wow. Yeah. And it I'm, just makes it real, doesn't yeah, it? So it you're does. not just going and doing something and feeling good yourself. Then you get that message, and like you know, Trish was saying, it saved twenty odd babies' lives. Yeah, that that that, that message would really <laughs> donate would, forever. Yeah, would you? It would really uh, make you stop and think. To actually have that the specific number on that would be just amazing. So, but but I mean, that's a, that's a good way of doing it. Is, is to actually, I mean, even ju- just to say it's on its way to a specific hospital is enough. Uh, absolutely. Donna says, I've just booked in to donate blood today because of your program. I've been planning to do it for so long and just not getting to it. The stat of 3% in the population of donating blood has shocked me into action. But also lots of people saying that they want to but can't for whatever reason. Dr Kathleen Chell is a research fellow of the Donor Behaviour Research Group, again, at Lifeblood. Kathleen, everything from being a homosexual man to going through a cancer diagnosis to being over the age of 80, all sorts of things, having digital ID as opposed to hard copy ID that people are saying is stopping them from donating, do incredible work. So I say this hand on heart with, you know, absolute respect, but is it getting too tricky for some people to donate? Um, I'm not too too across the eligibility criteria um, and the digital ID versus physical ID is a new one that I haven't come across. Um, But I do know our process to registering to donate is quite simple. Uh, We can register someone, book their first appointment in in person at a number of our events. So I'm not too sure on the barriers to registering their donation interest. What about um, restrictions in relation to things like, you know, the, the, the travelling to the UK, which has just been in relation, but also the cancer treatment? You know, mm. what, you know, what are the barriers of those sorts of things we're seeing? It has. Well, we're constantly reviewing our eligibility criteria on a number of different areas. And as you said, the uh, VCJD uh, eligibility in terms of if you were living in the UK has just been lifted. Um, and we're constantly reviewing those types of criteria to ensure that you know, we'd like as many people as possible to be eligible to donate, but I guess our number one priority is ensuring that we have a safe supply for our patients, but also that our donors remain healthy and mm. safe in if they are donating. A lot of people have suggested that if their workplace, not made it mandatory, but made it really easy, that they would probably do it. I wonder, right, whether we talk about quotas of all sorts of things. If you're a big maybe the public sector, whatever it may be, or a big workplace, that there could be or should be incentives for workplaces to make it easy and simple for their staff to donate blood. And maybe it's even bringing the van to really large workplaces, Kathleen. Do workplaces have a role to play here? Uh, Absolutely. We've done some research with our Lifeblood Teams program, which is a national kind of group donation program that primarily works with workplaces to help encourage employees join as part of a team and donate together. But I think workplaces are a critical gateway to access donors. And if workplaces could allow donors time to donate during their work hours, I mean, we know that a main barrier to donating is just simply, I don't have enough time or I don't think I have enough time. 
But if you could combine that during your work hours, I think that would be great. Kathleen, have you seen any change in um, donor numbers or behaviour um, post-COVID? And, I, and the reason I ask that is because a lot of workplaces that would donate would be offices, particularly in, yeah. in large centres and cities mm-hmm. and whatnot. You don't have a lot of um, – there's days when there's not a lot of people in offices. And, you know, is that sort of thing having an impact on donor numbers? Um, I'm not too sure on the exact effect that COVID's had on donation collections, but I do know in terms of that Teams program, a lot of its success previously was because blood bands could go to the workplace and you would be in the office. But now that most organisations have that hybrid model, like you said, there's a lot of people working from home, it's a bit harder to get that group together within the workplace to go and donate together. So there's been a little bit of an impact there, but we are looking at what new ways we could do to help build that you know, team factor back within the workplace, even though there's people working from home. So, uh, our listeners know everything. It says, Rish, you just need a hard copy ID for your first appointment only, apparently. Says this. There, you <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> just finally, Kathleen, some people suggest that maybe we should be paying people to donate blood. Yes. How do you feel about that? I mean, I don't think we need to go to payment yet. Uh, other than we have policies against payment, I mean, we are a voluntary, non-remunerated system. But Australia's blood donation system is built on such a strong spirit of volunteerism. Almost 90% of our donors endorse what we call impure altruism, meaning that they don't act to help others, but they also really enjoy the feeling of doing good and helping others. And there's international research that suggests that if a cash payment was introduced in Australia... This could risk undermining that strong altruistic mm. spirit of our existing donors and might demotivate them or demotivate some from continuing to donate. And that's a big risk. Kathleen, thank you. Dr. Kathleen Chell, Research Fellow of Donor Behaviour Research Group. So many messages. So apologies if Ed and I can't read out the text messages that are coming through. It's not that we haven't seen it or clocked it and not that it's not important. There are just so many. Here's a couple. Thank you to all blood donors. You are absolute heroes and save so many lives. My daughter would not have survived cancer treatment without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And this is from Cassie. When it comes to Christmas or my birthday, the one thing I ask from friends is to donate blood, a gift that genuinely helps and prevents people buying things that I may actually just re-gift. <laughs> On the incentive issue, don't underplay the, the motivation of the party pies, the sausage rolls, oh, the totally. the excellent muesli bars that they have, it, have there. I didn't know there was party pies oh, and sausage rolls. It, it is. I, I reckon I walk out there about five kilograms heavier than I went in. So, yeah, don't, don't underestimate that. Absolutely not. Julie's in North Baldwin. Good morning, Julie. Hi, Rochelle. How are you? Well, what's your story? Well, I originally started uh, as an O-negative blood donor, uh, right through to uh, my husband was also a donor. He's 260 um, donations now. Oh, wow. Um, Up until six years ago when I was diagnosed with CIDP, which is the same um, condition that Michael Klim has come out to discuss now. Yeah, so I... I also uh, was on the same treatment that he was on for a few years, but I asked if I could learn how to do the treatment at home. And um, so I was taught how to um, infuse the blood product into myself, into muscular. 
And every morning, every week when I do it to myself, I thank all, I actually know that my blood product comes from a collection of white females to match my blood. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all made through CSL. And they told me the story about it. And they tell, tell me that it's a collection of white women's plasma and every morning I think about them when I put my infusion in and I'm so grateful for them. I don't know. I know they're somewhere in Melbourne <laughs> and I just thank them so much for donating. Oh. They have no idea what that donation does for me. Oh, Julie, that's made you emotional, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and C- CSL came into my home and they asked if they could video me doing it at home so that they could... Um, use it as a teaching tool to encourage other people that need to do this for rare diseases and other people that also with um, cancer use this particular product, um, could do it at home rather than having to go off to hospital every week um, or like Michael every six, six weeks to be able to actually do it at home and keep your independence. Oh, wow. And And just just be able to think. Yeah, it does change your life. Oh, and these these people that donate, I mean, my children donate and I encourage people to donate because they have no idea of what that um, hour and morning tea does for us. And my husband gets those texts too to say that his plasma is on the way to so-and-so. And it's a real, it's a real, it means so much to him because he knows what it means to me. I have a brother who is a motorbike rider in his social life, but he's also a motorbike blood deliverer. And wow. there's all these people behind yeah, the ah, This is what I've discovered today. Julie, thank you. And we wish you all the best as well. So thank we really you. wish you and all the best with you your health. thank you to all the blood donors. Yeah, 100%. And all of the work that's going on, Behind the scenes, Ed. I mean, I knew today would be fascinating, right? Because once I was reading through all the different people and all the work that was going on, I was like, wow, I had no idea. But it comes down to those individual stories and those individual lives. It's the stories and their connections. Yeah. It's if you know something about where your blood's going or where the blood has come from, that's just that that's the real motivation you talk about paying you can talk about party pies it's that connection and that, that that's really going to motivate people lots of people who are thinking now it's time for me to donate being able to do things as well talking about running shuttle bus services to regional victoria to being able to donate but lots of thanks coming in for people just saying you know Thank you for this. Does it take long, Ed, when you go and do it? Like, how much of your time does it take up? No, no, not not at all. Um, you know, the first time you go, you're going to have to sit there and register and and fill out the clipboard and whatnot. But um, you know, I mean, you 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 do have to do a little bit of um, paperwork when you you do turn up, and then you know, then you go and have a chat. Um, in the cubicle, and they just check that everything's okay, and you haven't had a you know haven't been crook for the last x amount of time, and then you go and lay them in the chair or on the on the sort of massage table, and that doesn't take long at all. I know it takes you know some, some people slower. I mean, it takes probably fifteen minutes or so for the for the blood donation to actually happen. If you want some more information, you can either look at where you can donate blood locally. But Lifeblood is the group that we've been speaking to today, and some of the incredible work and research that they're doing to learn about what happens out in terms of our military that was next level i mean if you missed any part of today's program not only is the conversation hour a podcast so you can listen back
back to any show anytime you like. Just go to the ABC Listen app. We can send you today's program once the podcast is ready. What we need you to do is if you want to text the word CONVO, so C-O-N-V-O, if you text that now to 0437-774-774, so just our regular text number, when today's pod is ready, we will send you back personally a link to today's show because there may be someone who you want to share this with or you want to listen back to bits that you've missed. So if you want today's program to be sent personally to you, to your phone, then text the word CONVO, C-O-N-V-O, now to 0437-774-774. And later when today's program is ready, we'll send you back a link to the podcast. But as I said, you can listen anytime. Just go to the ABC Listen app and you can go back to other programs on The Conversation Hour. And I think you've inspired a lot of people to go out there and donate today. I know I'm a fainter. I'm actually wondering if I can train. I'm deadly serious. I'm actually wondering if I can train myself to not faint to be able to do it because I have been so inspired and I feel I feel awful that I don't do I, it. I reckon it's probably worth having a chat to Lifeblood because I, you, you, it wouldn't be that uncommon. But yeah, they, that's they, the thing. They, they would probably say, that, you know, here's some is, techniques. Yeah, exactly. I would th- think so. But, um, you know, it, it is a satisfying thing. Not everyone can do it, but it is a satisfying thing to do. Ed Gannon, as always, thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon.